Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 240. 240. It's crazy. I can't believe we've done so many of these. My name's Cameron English. I'm your host, as always, joined again by Dr. Liza Dunn, bringing the medical Hi. expertise, the fancy toxicology stuff that I still don't understand. <laughs> What's going on, Liza? How are you? Not much. It's a nice weekend, uh, and I can't believe the week went by so quickly. It's zoomed by. I'm I'm thrilled by that. The weather's beautiful, so I get to take my son to the park without burning alive because California is an evil, godforsaken desert <laughs> in October for some reason. <laughs> but it's okay. Things are good. Let's uh, let's do this show, and then uh, everyone can get on with their their wonderful weekend or whatever they're doing. So three stories as always, three stories as always, that's the magic number. First up is uh, anti-pesticide hysteria brings together conspiracy theorists and science illiterate people on the left and right. Next up, why worthless drugs sometimes seem to work. What we can learn from the FDA's withdrawal of the decongestant phenylephrine. And finally, scientists should use social media to fight advocacy group disinformation about modern agricultural biotechnology. This is the this is sort of a greatest hits episode, Liza, I think, because we talk about this stuff all the time because it never seems to go away. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> it gets more but lively by the minute. It just, it never stops. So here we are, right? Wash, rinse, repeat. Okay, so this first piece, this is by uh, Bill Wirtz with the Consumer Choice Center. He's writing in the Washington Times. And as the, the headline gives away, he's talking about these these sort of issues that bring together people that don't agree on anything else. If you take someone like RFK Jr. and, you know, the average libertarian voter who, who votes third party or whatever, they, they agree on almost nothing on, on very few issues, but on, on agriculture and even on some medical issues, there seems to be this really strange consensus of bedfellows. <laughs> and um, he's talking here specifically about, um, glyphosate is the is the primary concern. So there was this video going around, uh, I want to say a month ago or two months ago, and it's this online health guru, nutrition guy, and he's walking through the, the store uh, down the aisle of a grocery store, and he's looking at all the cereals, all the oatmeals and stuff, and he's going on and on about how they're all tainted with glyphosate and how you have to look out for your gut microbiome and all, like all the buzzwords, he's got them all down. Um, and Bill's talking about why so many people believe a guy like this. And again, I think if you're to ask this person on this video about certain issues, all of the people that are watching it would probably disagree with him. But on this one thing, they all are like, yeah, pesticides are bad and, and we got to get rid of them, et cetera, et cetera. So Bill has um, several explanations or there's two primarily. So the first he says is one we've talked about is technophobia. People are just scared of technologies they don't understand. But the, the second one, and, and, and I'm curious to get your thoughts, the more important one, I think, is just the deep distrust of the people delivering the information. This is well-known, uh, well-worn territory for us as well. But that seems to explain what we're dealing with here because most of these people, they're not scared of technology. A lot of them do podcasts. You know, They have microphones. They have computers. They have internet. They don't have a problem uh, with most of modern society. It's just, there's this handful, you know, it's vaccines and it's pesticides and it's, you know, this or that drug or this or that, uh, if you're RFK, it's, it's cell phones or, you know, that's exactly so, right. So there's only a few. Um, but, but I'm really curious, what, what do you think's going on here? I'm sure you ran into this as a physician 
for many years. Um, yeah, yeah, especially as a toxicologist. Here. You know, people get very, very concerned about chemicals just in general. The whole idea about chemicals makes people scared. And I think that there's a popular notion that chemistry is harmful when in fact it actually makes people's lives much better than it has been in you know the middle ages going all the way through up to the beginning of the 20th century um, chemistry for a better life is really actually true um, but i think that we've failed to communicate to people who now um, have no collective memory of what it was like to live without these things. Um, and it's really important that we, once again, I say this all the time, we've had um, five public health advances of the 20th century that brought us a 30-year increase of life in life expectancy that is absolutely unprecedented. And that is largely due to chemistry, right? So vaccines, antibiotics, food security, uh, vector control, and water sanitation. And chemistry has really contributed to all of those things. Sanitizing water from fecal contamination uh, has really decreased the uh, the uh, incidence of you know fecal-borne diseases. Um, vaccines uh, have prevented vaccine-induced uh, illness or uh, 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 viral and, and bacterial illnesses that have, have, didn't have cures in the past, right? And antibiotics did the same thing. These are all produced by chemistry, right? Um, and, and food security is largely because we've made some advances in chemistry that protect our crops and from getting diseases and protect our crops from um, being, uh, being attacked by pests. Um, they also protect these same chemistries, protect your house from being attacked by pests. We're hearing about a big bed bug outbreak in Paris now, right? And the, and the Parisians are freaking out because the Olympics are coming to Paris as far as I understand. And so there's this massive panic of what do we do about the bed bug? <laughs> and in fact, stations. Well, you're not going to just sit there and change the sheets because bed bugs aren't going to go away. You're going to have to figure out how to take care of that. And we've got very safe ways of doing that. I think where we've fallen down is that we haven't, we've, we've failed to do a good job in communication um, and to try to reassure people um, and build trust um, in these in these products because they've made everybody's lives way better than they were in the middle ages everybody had bed bugs and lice and ticks and fleas in the middle ages and those those organisms carried diseases like plague and epidemic typhus and killed lots and lots and lots of people and so i think we are uh, so privileged to be in the position that we're in that we've forgotten there's no collective memory of what it was like to live with these things. And if you think about the advances that we've made since 1960, you know, we have really dropped the use of pesticides per acre over 40%. Um, we did, we've decreased the uh, bioaccumulation and bioperistence, really markedly decreased. And we, we try to regulate for that, try to test and make sure that pesticides aren't sticking around for too long. Um, and then really, really dropped the concentration you need to get the same uh, of pesticide, to get the same effects um, on a crop. So long and short, is it's great science. It's brought great benefit to humankind, but we have not communicated very well. 
Yeah, a couple of things to add here. <clears throat> and I, I just want to underscore just how strange this coalition of people is. And and Bill Wirtz lists them. So he says he says this this coalition or cohort, whatever you want to call it, it includes conservative health nuts and very online paleotypes, libertarian corporate skeptics and off-gridders, haughty old school liberals and conspiracy theorists like RFK Jr., the classical liberal hippies and the environmentalists. So it's like And I, there's I don't, this profound distrust of industry is what among all of them and industry I, I think we need to try to figure out how to engage better um, because that, that, I think that's the common denominator um, is that you know oh industry is bad well industry is why we have all of these things um, and why we get access to all of these things um, you know academics are great at discovery um, but there's not a mechanism by which they can get the, the the their discoveries off the shelf and out to out to benefit the greatest number of people and so that's where industry that that's the role that industry plays and it's really really important to make life better for people yeah there's a there's a handful of groups in here and um, i don't spend a ton of my free time just like proselytizing the benefits of pesticides but i, I would be curious to have conversations with some of these people because like the he the so the libertarian corporate skeptics like people that I guess you would broadly say lean to the right I know a lot of these people are very adamant about the fact that industry drives scientific progress and they'll make very sophisticated arguments and they'll say you know the industrial revolution happened because you had people in the private sector trying to fix practical problems like developing steam engines and you know th th in other words they're trying to serve their customers and they've figured out ways to do that. And that's what drove a lot of the innovation. So I wonder if you could turn that point around them, around on them and say, well, look, you're absolutely right about that, but why doesn't it apply to these products? Why does it only apply to these ones? That's right. That, you know, so I, I would just be curious to have that discussion and see how they react, you know? Yeah. I'd be curious too. A lot of the products that people um, worry about are products that they don't realize affect their everyday lives. As, as, so you, you, you don't find people complaining about Wi-Fi, even though there, there are all these claims about Wi-Fi that are non-scientific, right? But you don't have Joe Rogan turning off his Wi-Fi, even though there's a claim that it causes cancer because it's right. beneficial, directly beneficial to him. And he, yeah. I'm assuming, feels that the benefits outweigh the risks. And I, I'm going to say this, there's not a risk of getting cancer from Wi-Fi. So yeah. even though even though IARC might say something along those lines, um, <laughs> there's not. But so it's the same thing with coffee. You know, people don't want to give up their coffee. They feel like they drink it every day and people uh, are concerned about chemicals, but the, the chemicals in the coffee that have uh, physiologic effects. And if you have too much, you get jittery because you get too much of this physiologic effect. And so, but people can directly see the benefits of that. They Once again, we've talked about how people have no problem using the most potent toxin known to mankind, which is a definite neurotoxin injected in their faces for um, cosmetic purposes. And the, the nanograms will kill you of botulinum toxin. But we know we can do this because we've got the regulatory apparatus around it to 
be able to do this safely. So you don't have to be afraid of chemistry. Even if chemistry has a potential for side effects, um, you know, the, the benefits of it have made us really um, improve our lifestyles uh, to a way that was absolutely unimaginable, uh, unimaginable in the last century. Yeah. Yeah. Just a final thought here. I, I was listening to another podcast uh, last week and they were talking about not this specific issue, but they were talking about how you change somebody's mind on a, on a given topic. And um, the host said, and, and he's like a screenwriter, um, novelist and so forth. And it was really insightful because he said, you know, people are moved by their affections or their loves, right? What, what are they committed to in life the ideas that sort of animate them? That's what drives the decisions they make and the things they believe. And so if you come at them with, you know, statistics or, you know, according to this study in 2017, derp, 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 right, that, that's just, that's white noise. It might as well be. So it's not that the facts don't matter, but what I took from what he was saying was you have to engage with the values that they have. Yeah. And that, that might be the way forward. And I bring that up. It's not a, it's not a really novel point, but I bring it up because people like me tend to suck at that, right? You don't <laughs> because suck like, at that at all. <laughs> Well, but I mean, like, it, like, like I, I, let me put it another way. There's a temptation to assume that your outlook on the world is the obvious one. Um, and I see it a lot in other people on Twitter and or X, whatever. So it's probably true in me as well. Is right. Like you, you look at something like a vaccine that is effective and you go, well, everyone obviously has to see this. So I just have to explain to you how effective this is. And, and I think that's that's probably the wrong approach in a lot of cases. Yeah. And we just don't consider that. As, you know, it's interesting. We could probably take a leaf out of the book of professional communicators. There are there are principles of communication um, that are that may apply. And, and being scientists and you know things like that, people get very involved in their own discussion and their in their own idea, and they think that they that other people are automatically understanding what they say. And they're not necessarily understanding that. So maybe we could take a leaf out of or learn something from our, you know, communications experts and, and start applying that. Um, things have to be concise. They have to be clear. They have to be um, consistent. And you have to have, um, but yeah, you, ha you have to be wedded to the truth too, because you really want to sure. Um, you want to build trust and empathy and things like that. So maybe yeah. that's, maybe that's what we could do. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, and and just to, not to belabor too much, but that show I was listening to, they pointed out that even people who consider themselves rational and evidence-based or skeptic, like whatever label you want to put on it, he said, it's not like you don't look at a syllogism in philosophy or you don't look at a um, a table in a scientific paper and you're just overwhelmed by the, the, <laughs> by, by the validity of, right, right. <laughs> what, what, what happens is, is you see the connections and then the light bulb goes on and that's what moves you. So, so the point he's making is like, you're moved by your saying the same affections that other people are. It's just that, you know, like once you understand why planets move the way they do or why earthquakes happen or why, um, uh, DNA transcription occurs, right? Like you sort of grasp it and you go, this is freaking amazing that this, there's like these little machines just doing all this. Right. It's like and this so epiphany. Yeah. Right. Right. So in other words, so like you have that revelation 
but then you go out and you go, well, let me explain the finer points of, uh, of biology. Right, right. That's, that's where you, <laughs> and right. So, are like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. So it's just it's just something to remember. And I, again, not lecturing people because I struggle with it sometimes too. So um, just something to keep in mind when you're talking to people. Figure out what they care about and try to cater to that. I guess is that's exactly right. You want to find some commonality because we all have you know in- different interests. And if you can spark that interest in somebody and see the light bulb go on, that's really rewarding. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Story number two. Uh, along the same lines. Sort of like an adjacent story, I would say. So this is Dr. Henry Miller uh, at the American Council on Science and Health. And he's, uh, he's I'm not going to read this headline because it's super long. But basically, uh, last month, the FDA withdrew <clears throat> um, a decongestant or the active ingredient in a decongestant. It's called phenylephrine. And it, 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 it's, been a, it's been used for a long time, but it started, um, the use increased in 2006 because the, I think it was the Drug Enforcement Agency said you have to put pseudoephedrine, which is the, I, I guess you call it like the active ingredient. <laughs> like this is the, this is the drug that really works. So if you have the sniffles for years, you would go to the store and you'd get a package of this stuff and it worked. But yeah. because there was a few people that were using it as a precursor to methamphetamine, the federal government and in its infinite wisdom said, well, we're going to put it behind the counter. So now you have to go talk to the pharmacist and you can only buy so much in a month. Um, so that did nothing except make it harder to get medicine because the people that uh, manufacture illicit drugs, they found a new way because they're pretty ingenious. <laughs> they're so they're they, chemists. <laughs> yeah. 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 Dr. Josh Bloom at ACSH talks about this and he has no patience for these kind of dumb regulations because, um, you know, like there's a huge demand for methamphetamine, sadly, and there's people that want to make money selling it. So if there's another way to do it, they're going to figure it out. And ironically, he points out that I forget the method uh, P2P or anyways, I don't know what I'm talking about, but he says they found another way and it actually produces a more pure product. (laughs) So, so people are getting a a stronger hit of meth and it's less expensive. (laughs) And meanwhile, you have a stuffy nose. Um, so yeah. Yeah. All the non-methamphetamine users are suffering in their misery, right? (laughs) So at least the methamphetamine users don't have the sniffles. Um, they've got Mm -hmm. terrible teeth though. Um, (laughs) and, and, you know, tweaking and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, but yeah, so it's interesting because phenylephrine theoretically should work, right? Because phenylephrine is what we call an alpha agonist. So it makes blood vessels constrict. And if you are congested and you have, you constrict the blood vessels in your nose, you get less swelling and less, um, stuffiness. And so it, it should theoretically, work. Now, why doesn't it work when you take it by mouth? Well, because it's less than 1% bioavailability, which means it doesn't get from your gut into the bloodstream. And if it doesn't get from your gut into the bloodstream, it's not going to have a physiologic effect on the um, on, on your nose, uh, to say the least. Now, if you've noticed, they have not taken inhaled phenylephrine off the market. And the reason why is that it directly acts on the area when you have a nasal inhaler it directly acts on those vet blood vessels when you give phenylephrine iv sometimes when people have um, very low blood pressure and you're trying to get a central line into them and you to get their blood pressure to come back up because it causes vasoconstriction when you give it iv um, it makes it, their blood vessels constrict and their blood pressure goes up 
And so blood pressure will go up with phenylephrine. Um, if, if you give it to the, deliver it to the vessels, the vasculature. And the way you get it to the vasculature is either IV or um, through the nose. So it works that way. And people might feel that better that way, but you're not getting it in the right spot when you're when you're ingesting it. So that's that's the problem with it is it doesn't work because you, your digestive enzymes break it down, and 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 it won't get into the compartment that it needs to get to. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So there's a couple of things here that um, Henry goes on to say. He's not like he. I mean, this is the setup for what he's talking about, but he's talking about why the drug seems to work for a lot of people. Um, and he's talking about the, the, the oral medication because most people, when they have a stuffy nose, unless it's like, you know, seasonal allergies, they usually don't use an inhaler or a nasal, nope. whatever it's called, right? Or Mr. Yep. I don't know. Um, but it seems to work for people, at least some people, because he says there's 242 million packages or bottles of um, phenylephrine sold every year or in 2022 at least, right? So it's almost $2 billion in sales. So people are using this stuff. Or they're buying it. Presumably, they're using it. So he gives two uh, explanations. The first is the uh, the placebo effect, which I'm curious to get your thoughts on because we haven't talked about that much. But the basic idea is, is I think, is if you think something's going to work, it has a higher likelihood of, of working for you. Um, and then the other is just an, an, a logical fallacy, which is that you know sometimes people's symptoms improve, and they happen to take this drug before they improve, and they go, well, A plus B equals C. Okay, the drug works. That's um, right. That's really fascinating. So, so talk about that. I'm, I'm curious what you think. Yeah. So the placebo effect's really interesting. If you expect to have a an, an effect, often you'll see physiological responses to the administration of things. So people who are taking placebo for pain or whatever, they, when they take it, you'll see their heart rate go down, their blood pressure go down, and things like that. And so you actually, it's actually interesting. I think the BMJ did a um, study in 2020 looking at uh, the placebo effect itself. And it, when you're trying to put a pain medicine on the market, you need to demonstrate that it does better than placebo. And the placebo effect is, I think they were saying in this study that, that you can get some semblance of it in up to 75% of, of patients, right? They expect wow. a result. They don't know which drug they've taken because they ex expect a result. They may actually get some kind of um, relief in terms of calming down right so we talked about this a little bit in the past when you when you calm down um you are you are have neurotransmitters in your brain that are released that will settle your nerves and when they settle your nerves your heart rate goes down automatically your blood pressure goes down because you felt relief from a stressful input. So if pain's stressful and you think you're taking something for it, your stress level may go down and then you have uh. these physiologic effects because of the way the neurotransmitters work in your brain. So I suspect that there's a lot to do with the placebo effect there. Um, if you think about it, homeopathy is entirely mm. built on the placebo effect. Right. You, you know, you get water with memory <laughs> of a chemical or whatever, and you detox from it. And I really think it actually ha has to do with your less stress. So your flight, fl fight or flight mechanism in, in, in your body has settled down and that makes you feel better by default. Fascinating. I, it, this reminds me, there's a, there's a 
big anti-GMO website. They're called GM Watch, and they they did uh, they collaborated with um, Jeffrey Smith on a study a few years ago, talking about the benefits of eating non-GMO food. And it was just a it was an online survey of their newsletter subscribers or Jeffrey Smith's newsletter subscribers. And the when GM Watch was reporting on this, they said, you know, there's no real reason that this would happen except that people expect a benefit. And she, I believe she said this was the placebo effect. And she said, you know, if that's, if that's what it is, then so be it. And, and it was funny to me because when I was writing about it, I said, well, yeah, sure. If you think this is going to be good for you, then knock yourself out, but just quit lying about, you know, quit lying about your products and everybody else's. Yes. And you're going to say, if you want to advertise it as a placebo effect, then fine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, that's the interesting question, though, is if you tell people it's a placebo effect, does the, does the impact. And they get very mad. <laughs> so then they tend to get upset. So you've got no, I've taken this medicine. I know it works for me. I've seen okay. all sorts of people who have, you know, supplements and herbal medicines and things like that that they've gotten from various and sundry um, providers. Sure. And um, they tell me unequivocally that I'm wrong. They feel much better. So I think okay. that. Um, so if, as far as I'm concerned, if they want to pay money for supplements and things like that, that are going to have a placebo effect and they feel better, have at it. But it, as long as it's not going to do harm, right? If, sure. it, if they're taking something that I think is harmful, then I think I have an obligation to tell them why I think it's harmful. Yeah. And and, and and then I can go through the science, but often they look glaze over. <laughs> sure, sure. So. so denial is not just a river in Egypt is what you're no, saying. No, that's okay. exactly right. Okay, well, let's move on. Final story. Um, this is a, a study that was uh, conducted by uh, a good group. They're called the International Service for the Acquisition of Agrobiotech Applications. Again, Science needs a marketing department. <laughs> Third week in yes. a row, I'm going to stress yes. that. <laughs> yes, but but nonetheless, they're they're a great organization because they work largely in the developing world, and they talk about the benefits that biotech crops and other technologies can bring to people who are suffering and who are really hungry and are trying to improve their their living standards. Nevertheless, uh, the study here they're talking about um, it was a survey of social media users around the world. I want to say it was like 1,500 people or something, but they're something trying to like- figure out. They're trying to figure out how do you how do you talk to people about this technology or really any scientific topic, I suppose, it could apply. And it's not a surprising result, but I think it's still a correct one, which is that you need people with relevant ex- expertise to get on X and to get on Facebook and to get on YouTube and communicate directly with the public. Because I think what we've seen, and uh, maybe you have some different thoughts on this, what I've seen at least is that when the information is filtered from PhD chemist to uh, I don't know, AP reporter, uh, the consumer walks away very poorly informed about whatever the topic is. That's exactly right. So, so, I mean, I mean, there's lots of examples of this. I mean, this show in a small way is an example of it. There's really popular, like debunk the funk is a really popular YouTuber that goes really deeply into a lot of these issues, vaccines and that kind of thing. Um, but according to the study, this seems to have an impact on, on people who are just right. They're doom scrolling and then they come across the video and it says, Hey, let me explain this medicine to you. And then yes. that seems to have a positive effect. Yeah, it's incredible. And I think that this study actually supports, I, I've been kind of saying for a while now that one of the problems with scientific communication is, well, there are a couple of things. First of all, people actually trust scientists, but they don't have access to them. 
So they, when I've been on Twitter spaces talking about scientists and the, how hard they've worked to develop these vaccines, and they were in this epidemic too, the response that I've gotten is, yeah, it's not the scientists that are, are the bad guys. It's, it's everybody who's oh. trying to make money that are the bad guys. So I, I thought that that was kind of, that was kind of interesting. Um, and the, when I looked at this study, what they, the, the, this study was found was that people really trust what the scientists are doing and how they, and and when they understand what the scientists are doing it really they'll support it and they, they like they will support uh, biotech crops in the philippines when they understand why we do the things we do there but the problem mm-hmm. is they don't have access to the scientists so it's very hard to talk one-on-one with the scientists or get a, ask a scientist q a questions the second problem with scientists is often scientists are so good at what they do in the lab and understand things so deeply that it takes almost a PhD to understand what they're saying. So it's very right. hard for them to translate for the ordinary person um, or, or, or even scientists from different backgrounds, right? You've got, right. If, if you've got a physician who's got a, a deep expertise in a certain area. They may not know any, anything about plant pathology, mm-hmm. um, they might be able to understand the concepts once they're explained, but they might go to the lay literature to kind of understand the issues around something. And so mm-hmm. you often have to have a depth of knowledge, scientific knowledge when you're talking to a PhD in, in, and when you have just general corporate communications, that's too high level. That may be right. good for, that may be good for, you know, a, a consumer just wanting to know what products are out there or whatever, but just the trust us, trust the science message when you don't have an expert talking about the science or who can actually answer questions about the science um, and or you'd need a PhD to understand what the scientist is saying. There's a real gap there in between that level of communication. And that's where things like this podcast um, and other science uh, communications uh, outlets are really, really important. And I think we need to really try to figure out how to amplify this kind of um, forum um, so people can people can have access to scientific information that they trust and that they understand um, and, and can have access to the ability to ask questions. So I think that this is an area where I'm hoping we can actually get more physicians involved. And the reason why I say physicians other, rather than a whole bunch of different scientists is because especially emergency physicians, emergency physicians are able to take very complex scientific information and translate it quickly to a vast group of different kinds of people with different kinds of backgrounds and different levels of understanding from kids all the way to geriatrics to to in and and they they're they have to do it quickly and concisely because they are they've got to move as well yeah so i think that they are they've got a unique skill set that most people don't have and i'd love to see them start moving into the scientific communication from there's just not enough physicians doing that yeah that's really insightful and and again i want to stress that this is really difficult i remember 
this is years ago. It's my first like big media appearance. I did a podcast episode uh, for a project I was working on. And it was at the time it was like uh, Kevin Fulta, former co-host of the show was really under attack from all the anti GMO groups. And they were, you know, getting his emails and publishing in them and doxing him, like just really cruel stuff. And it wasn't just him. It was like 30 different researchers who are all just being blasted by these groups. This really concerted effort. I mean, it's just, it's cruel, it's invasive. And of course they're lying, right? So they don't even have the facts. Right. But so I was working on a project to make this visible to people. And I was getting, I was able to go on the show and I was expecting people to agree with me because they I, they shared a lot of my assumptions. But even in that setting, it was hard because one thing, the host was actually more skeptical than I anticipated because I said a couple of the, I said Monsanto and glyphosate, right? I say the magic words and all of a sudden it's time to Everybody's fight, like- <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> so there was that, but then like, there's so many layers even to that discussion. So it's like, okay, why is this a group like us right to know hate people at the university of Florida? Like, what are they, what's so bad about them? It's like, okay, well see this guy breeds crops that are, uh, you know, herbicide tolerant and farmers really like them because they help with weed control. It, you know what I mean? So like right there, you just all like, you're off on a rabbit trail that you could spend 20 hours talking about. That's you know, exactly but you ha- right. But you have 28 minutes to to discuss the, the entirety of this. So I'm, I mean, not to get off on an, another rabbit trail, but that's how <laughs> difficult it gets is right. Just with a single question, all so of a that's sudden. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So you've got scientists who don't want to f- deal with that, right? They, right. they, they just want to keep their heads down and work. Same thing with doctors. Doctors want to keep their heads down and work and not get entailed in, in, in or in, entangled in all this kind of stuff, right? Right. Um, but there's not this, this is the, it is so critical that we start doing better job of communicating. When I, when I get on Twitter spaces and I'm the only pro vaccine doctor there mm-hmm. taking the slings and arrows of everything, it, it makes it very hard for people to say, defend vaccines, right? If there were more people willing to come out and have a real discussion with people, I think that we would actually have a, a bigger impact um, because it that makes us more available. The other thing is that emergency doctors are used to slings and arrows, right? We're used to very high yeah. stress situations, having to communicate with angry, upset people um, <laughs> who are going through very stressful things. I mean, explaining to we've got to do this procedure very quickly on your son or daughter who's got a gunshot wound. Whoa. Right. So there, there are all sorts of um, skills that I think are unique to emergency medicine. If you add toxicology on top of it, you wind up with lots of things like biochemistry and, and, uh, and physiology that is really deep in pharmacology. That's really deep. And you can, really explain things well. So I, I'm, I'm going to encourage my fellow toxicologists to start getting active in, in um, science communication because I think that they are very good at it. Yeah. Yeah. Very important. It's just so fascinating that the thing that so many people are bad at is just interacting with other humans. I know, right? All the things in life you struggle to, to develop skills in and succeed at. And it's just, 
Hi, I'd like to talk to you about what, you know, it's just like, we're like, oh, oh, <laughs> I don't that's, know what to That's say. right. Oh my gosh, somebody disagrees with me. <laughs> yeah. It's the end of the world, right? No, let's have a conversation about it. And yeah. just as long as you're cordial, you got to, I, mean, I, I tell people, put on, you know, if, if somebody's disagreeing with you and you think of yourself in a clinical setting, think of yourself sitting in the ER, you've got a, a person who's very angry at you and you've, you, you've got to keep it together. You can't be judgmental. You got to understand why they're angry. You, you learn these things. And I think it's important. It's an important skill to have. And I think we need to really start practicing that in science communication. We've gotten too condescending with people um, as scientists when they have genuine questions, when they have genuine questions about they're worried about vaccines because they've heard RFK Jr. Well, that doesn't make them anti-vaccine and we should be patient with them, right? and have the discussion instead of saying, I know better because I'm the scientist and I'm the doctor and you should just listen to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. That never works. Just, if you're a parent, you know, that doesn't work. Like, listen, I'm, exactly right. I'm dad. Why is it bedtime? Cause I say it's bedtime. Yeah. But why is it bedtime? Cause I say it's, it doesn't. Yeah. That often doesn't end well. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, there's uh, there's your science communication and parenting advice for the week. Thank you for joining us. As always, we'll be back next time for 241. In the meantime, follow us on X. I have to get used to saying that. I don't like it. I want to say yeah. Twitter. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> I think people are just going to start calling it Twitter X. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> at Dr. Liza MD, at Camgia English, the Genetic Literacy Project is at Genetic Literacy. Give them a follow because they put this whole thing on for us. Oh, and by the way, I haven't been asking this for a long time, but um, review the show. Give us some stars, oh, lots yeah. of stars on, uh, on uh, what's called iTunes. Yep. Write a review. That really does help. Share it with your friends. It's the best thing you can do to get this out to more people. So, uh, you know, we don't have to keep talking about why pesticides are good. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you as always for joining us. We will see you next time. Have a good weekend. <laughs>